so, you know, this delay in recording has been my fault. What delay? Well, the fact that we haven't put out an episode in a couple of weeks, it's, you know, we like to do like every other week or maybe every week. We're not, we're not very punctual with these. We, we don't have a, we don't have an established rhythm that the listeners can depend on. Let's just say that. But even given that uh, failing, if it's a failing, mm. maybe it's just a, I don't, maybe it's not a failing. Maybe this is just like a little bundle of joyful delight that just lands in your podcatcher every now and then. I don't, I don't mm. normally use the word podcatcher. I'm getting a little mm. bit meta here, but I, I don't, I don't really like it. Um, but that said, yeah, it's been, I have to say like a lot of our delays have been like mutual, like both of us have stuff going on or right. in, in a few cases you've been gone or you've had stuff going on. And, and, um, but, but this one is truly just my fault. I'll own up to it. The delay. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't think of it as as uh, something that has a fault or a failure, um, and so that's cool. And then there were a few months. I mean, there were months that went by. It's all yeah, good. but that's just part of the that's just part of the uh, oral argument lore, the the inter, ah. interregnum. But this one was like you know um, my great grandparents are a but for cause of the delay here, because they're a but for cause of everything about your life. Exactly. Exactly, yep. and uh, your great grandparents are not a but for cause of this delay, but but mine are. And but wait a minute, they are because I have been a friend of yours and interacted with you sufficiently that I think the chains of but for causation are now intertwined and mm. un unintertwinable, anti unintertwinable. Like they yeah. can't be untertwined. Well, once we go intertwined, yeah, once we start to go in that direction, though, we realize that the whole idea of causation is a mental exercise well you hey know. and i'm i'm this I'm, this because I'm that about like nothing you can't have not mental exercises <laughs> you, like it couldn't be otherwise but um so as you know like oral argument world headquarters where i'm now um, um uh speaking into your ears from mm. excuse me mm-hmm. excuse me for ending for ending the sentence in a preposition jumps i apologize Yeah, that is something up with which i will not put I, yeah i truly i i do apologize but uh it is, uh, you know, we're trying to move into smaller quarters. This is an ongoing thing. The listeners know this. The listeners know this. We're, we're trying to downsize a little bit. We're going to move headquarters. And and this whole place is just coming coming apart. Because, you know, <laughs> when, when we first moved into world headquarters about um, 13, 14 years ago, mm. near, nearly 13 and a half years ago, something like that. Wow. We want, we were looking for, we were very specifically looking for not a fixer upper, but a runner downer. Mm. Because Mission we're accomplished. Because, because we don't really fix anything up or like, I don't have the skills. I don't, yeah. I don't, Joe, I don't know from tools. I don't know from tools, but, but boy, <laughs> I, I'm, I am learning though. I think I'm getting a little bit better. My wife is way better than I am at all this stuff. Like mm. she's just, she's better at, let's just stipulate at everything. And this is you. You mentioned this because you're you're fixing some stuff up now in the process of getting it on the market. Is that what you? Is that what you? Exactly. Mean? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And and the consequence of this is that the you know I can't even uh, I, I'm walking around piles of things which have been moved from rooms that are being worked on into other rooms. You know, um, uh, you know, even to get to my own bathroom, I got to kind of wander around a maze. Mm. Um, you know, like an animal, Joe. Like an animal over here, so that's okay. how I feel. I feel I feel I feel feral in my own house. So you gotta uh, you gotta find the pellet. You're like you're walking around the maze because <laughs> right. you're looking for the pellet, right? And that's I mean you know rewards are good. 
So, but a maze in the dark where you're very likely to like you know bump your shin or or step on something in the middle. That's of the how night. learning happens. You yeah, gotta, well, that's animals bump into maze corners every day. Yeah, yeah, you're this just is, uh, like that. You're punishment just training. Animal in another maze. Punishment training. Well, this has been a nice detour. Speaking of mazes and yeah. detours and so, so here's the real here's the critical question. Is there any region of the floor that is electrified? I want to know what kind of maze training this is really about. Well, truth be told, the final, the final five to ten minutes of the delay in the recording of this episode uh, were due to uh, were due to the rep- we were replacing a switch that, uh, for for a for a garbage disposal thing, a, you know, a sink disposal thing. Okay. Because the old switch didn't quite work, but it worked. So, like, you got to make sure that the power is turned off. Uh, mm. you, you, you know, you got to make sure that is the case. Otherwise, you, you probably die, right? I assume. I, I, I'll take your word for it. I mean, you can't, you, I, you get all that. When I was a kid, actually, I stuck some keys into a into a socket. Whoa. Yeah, I, I have a very distinct memory of this. And my mom says I was like two or three. I don't know how old I was, but like. I had an image in my mind that that socket, you know, the little smiley faces that the sockets make or the, you know, the little faces yeah. of the outlets. Um, right. I was, I was pretending that these were somehow like the treehouse and Mr. Rogers where the owl was. Mm. And I was like, and I was putting the keys in there just to kind of like, you know, this makes for great podcasting because I'm, I'm motioning with my hand. As you can see. <laughs> Listeners, it, it really is. He's motioning with his hand. He really uh, is doing it. I was like, you know, uh, you know, not that one because I would kind of stick the key. I remember sticking it into some of these outlets and nothing happening. Maybe I didn't stick it in far enough. And all right. of a sudden, I just remember the shower of like, like orange light bulb type things. And I was doing backflips. And for years, I would I would remember to myself uh, this. I would remember this this incident as being able to do a backflip because that was always my. I, I was always a little bit embarrassed <laughs> as as a because you know kids are supposed to do uh, uh, gymnastics. They're supposed to be able to do tumbles and things like that. I can never do like a like a like a backward somersault. Oh. And some of the kids I knew could do backward somersaults, but I remember this one time when I triumphantly performed a a backward somersault, and that was uh, when I was blown back by by you know many many volts of electricity. Whoa! And you survived. I don't know if it's the amps or the volts. the wa- The watts equals the amps times the volts. That's the upshot. Oh, okay. It's kind of like water, except when it's not. If you want to know about electricity. So anyway, I survived. I did survive, um, but I have had that. I don't. I did not want to repeat that experience today, so we carefully turned off the electricity and all that, and then tried to. You know, there are all these wires in there. We're doing the switch. It didn't go in easily. We're trying to bend the wires, and we're like, "Is this going to cause a fire?" Like, I, I don't know. So we, I'm still not sure it's quite right. But here we are. Okay, isn't there an electrician who can do this properly? Uh, well, there of course there are many who could do it properly. And, uh, and my, why not? Ret- my favorite not? local. My favorite local electrician drives a hearse. By the way, mm, fascinating, wonderful guy. Why can't this? Uh, why can't you hire this person or, or someone from among uh, these many persons to take care of these issues? Because it's you? just a little switch. It, you know, it's, it's easy enough to do. It's actually easy to do, but the wires wouldn't quite go in right. It was just, they're, they're very stiff, and so getting it into the so uh, maybe it's so maybe it's box. not so easy to do. It's easy uh, to do, but let me describe the ways in which it wasn't easy. I mean, are you listening to yourself? Yeah. Well, but I, I, the wires just wouldn't bend very easily. And so it was hard to get the switch back into the outlet box. That's all. And that doesn't seem like an electrician thing. That seems like, well, maybe, you know, they would do it much more easily. What I'm learning through this whole process is that people who, who make it their profession to do things, specific things, are way better at that uh, than we are. Yeah, yeah. That's been my <laughs> observation, too. Um, 
And indeed, but, you can bring uh, yeah. that. You can bring that. You can circle that all the way back. You can bring that all the way home to observe that. You know, people who spend their time specializing on the stuff that that you and I tend to do tend to be better at those things. Oh, and here I was thinking you finally struck on a counterexample. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. No, I think it. I think it's the same point, not a different point. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know what the heck I do, to be honest with you. But whatever I do, I, I guess I do it a lot. And I'm, I guess I'm good at what I do, whatever that is. Yeah. And uh, so the, the, switch, uh, the Switch adventure is complete. It works. It uh, works. So you believe. So you believe. Yeah, well, it definitely turns on and off. Okay. It definitely turns on and off. But, uh, may, you know, maybe we'll have an electrician in here eventually. I don't know. But it, it's fine. Uh, if you sell the house, uh, there will definitely be an inspector going through it at some point, and that inspector will have to opine on things like the state of the wiring and the state of the plumbing and all those good things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're getting all that done. It's all happening. It's all happening. We want simplicity, Joe. We want to downsize into simplicity. Now, what I would do is get a small travel trailer and live in that. Okay. Uh, Meredith wants something a little bit more permanent. So, we're looking. We're looking. Oh, you are? You're actively looking at what to Not, do next? Yeah, they're kind of looking around a little bit, yeah. Okay. I, I I would live, as you know, in the Cascades of the Pacific Northwest. Mm, they are beautiful, aren't they? Yeah, it it would be a hell of a commute to my current job. It would be. It would be. Although with this semester, you might be able to make it work. But oh, certainly this semester. I'm teaching online this semester. Yeah, I did not. I taught in person last semester, so you know it wouldn't have worked then. Right. Or it would have been a lot of uh, a lot of high carbon output travel mm, to make that work. And then so. this this fall, uh, I certainly hope that we're back in the classroom. I it was. Uh, I greeted the Johnson and Johnson. Um, uh, announcement this morning, the Johnson and Johnson uh, vaccine data announcement with great uh, glee. I saw that. Yeah. I thought that was I thought it was great. Did you take a look at the? Yeah, they they released the um, they released the briefing documents today, and I was able to look at them. I, I don't know. I I'm not gonna. I would be happy to opine on it off the air, mm. but since I am not an expert, I won't opine on it on the air. Yeah, I wasn't trying to opine. I was relating my emotional state, which was happiness, when I saw the news. That's all. This is the news about the additional supply from Johnson & Johnson? Or is this the news about what was in the briefing documents? The the latter. Okay. Uh, yeah. And it, I, I thought, oh, that's great to see that. I, I know nothing about the details other than what I've already said by way of a headline. Yeah, you know, uh, so I will say this one thing. Because I keep seeing it in the news, um, where they talk about the two shots for the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, uh-huh. and how the Johnson & Johnson is a one-shot vaccine. I, I will say this. There's nothing inherent about these vaccines that is one or two-shot. And in fact, we don't really know how effective either is with with either one-shot or two-shots, except what's been studied. So. You know, they're calling this a one-shot vaccine because that was what that was what was that, that was what was studied in the phase three trial. And they only studied the two-shot regimen in the Moderna and Pfizer trials. So we mm. don't really know what the efficacy is for, I mean, there's some guesses about the efficacy for Moderna and Pfizer, if only for just the one shot. And there are, and I think I read 
back when Johnson and Johnson first made their announcement, they were that when the study was done and they were applying for the, they, they announced their intention to apply for the emergency youth use authorization, that they were also going to conduct a two shot study that was in like their little press release. So I don't know. So it might get better efficacy um, for the Johnson and Johnson vaccine if there are two shots. I hope so. It'd be also good to know if you could get one shot of the Johnson and Johnson and then later get a shot of one of the mRNAs, you know, that obviously has not been studied. So this is the trick. And presumably they will continue to uh, do these various trials and investigations because it would be helpful to know uh, answers to the questions you just raised. And because there are variants that are developing and figuring out both how to treat uh, or prevent those effectively and, um, getting more information about the vaccines we already have, uh, including any additional vaccines as well. So it's like, yeah, there's going to continue to be lots of investigation of, of this one hopes. Yeah. Um, this, I want to interrupt to say the sound on that I hear from you sounds quite different from the way it usually sounds. So I don't know whether that's an equipment question or an equipment yeah, you're, issue. It, it's, it, it won't show up on the recording. It won't. No. No, so long as you can actually hear the words I'm speaking, they're coming through my uh, headphones rather than through the speaker on my computer. So it may sound a little bit tinnier. Uh, okay, yeah, that explains it. Um, yeah, cool. So what else are we going to talk about? I, you had a topic. You had a topic, Joe. I did. That was a while ago, though. I don't know that I want to talk about that. Oh, my God. I was all ready to talk about this. Really? Well, let's pretend well, it's your topic. That will be more congenial to me. No, this would not be my topic. This is, you have to own it. You have to okay, own it. Okay, what's your topic? Oh, uh, geez. I don't, you know, there's... Um, hmm. I, don't, I don't have a topic, Joe. <laughs> I, was, I was all ready to talk about yours. Tell, tell me what you... Tell me, tell me, first of all, like, what you texted me, this thing. You this said, was I think weeks we should talk ago. about this. It was a couple weeks ago. And you said, yeah. I think we should talk about what this thing. I, what did I just say? I said it was weeks ago. She said, yeah. it was a couple of weeks ago. Right. It was it was weeks ago. You don't need to correct me to give the same information. <laughs> oh, this this is why people tune in. They want to hear us uh, bicker about this stuff. <laughs> you don't need um, to bicker if you don't correct me with the same information. Well, so what you texted I thought was interesting, and I, I thought that it was an effort to kind of steer the show back onto stable shores, stable shores of like legal talk, um, and, and I I I respected that and. And and the topic that you suggested was, um, you know, what what, um, and you phrased it in terms of the duty owed, which I kind of thought was interesting. So, in judicial opinions, as most or maybe even all of our listeners know, there's usually a, well, there's an opinion of the court, and if there's not full agreement, sometimes you will get concurrences. These are people, justices or judges who are writing separately to say, yes, I agree with this judgment, but I have some other things I want to say. Or uh, you might have, or and or you might have dissents, you know, saying, I, I actually voted, I don't think it should come out this way, and here's, here's why. And um, not every judge writes in every case uh, where there are multi-judge panels. Sometimes judges will just sign on to the opinions of others, so we don't have like seriatim opinions from every judge, like I guess um, had been the practice. And is it still the practice? I'm so ignorant of English um, mm. judicial practice, but... In, in I know in in olden days there was this practice of writing seriatim, um, and so it is closer. It is it is closer uh, in answer to your question about the UK practice. 
my understanding is that it is closer uh, to that today than we are, certainly. Uh, although, uh, I think it's also true that in some very uh, prominent cases, the, the UK Supreme Court, for example, does make an effort to try to speak with fewer voices, uh, have mm -hmm. fewer judges write. Um, so, for instance, um, uh, was it two years ago? Uh, when uh, there was an effort to prorogue the parliament uh, and there was a challenge to that effort, uh, the UK Supreme Court had to weigh in on that and um, uh, Johnson's power to do that. Uh, and I think they, they strove to have only one opinion, mm -hmm. given the very high profile nature and the, and the sort of uh, the fact that the question hadn't really come up before and it was perceived as being a question about very deep constitutional issues in the sort of the architecture and the working of the of the very basic uh, fundamentals of British government. Um, of course, that desire to speak with one voice is is a is is politically desirable for a court which is trying to do something significant that it expects might attract some opposition, but the court agrees as an institution, this is very important for us to speak with one voice on. And, you know, a key example, I guess, is Brown against Board in the United States. Um, yes. Uh, and th there, of course, in the, in the context of Brown, uh, that was at a time when, uh, relative to now, uh, there were, I think, fewer separate opinions in U.S. Supreme Court cases um and and so part of that the the unanimity signal is a function of course of the backdrop against which it's used so if you're if it's customary that you would often have many judges writing a variety of opinions in a case like the as you were referring to sort of the olden days of the house of lords um in in the uk um then speaking with one voice might be a more prominent uh, it might be perceived as a more prominent act, uh, precisely because it's in a sharper contrast with the norm. Right. Uh, it, Brown, uh, I think, again, if we just looked at the, the frequency tables for separate opinions, I think we would see that at that point in time in the mid-50s, um, although dissents were noticeably more common, uh, according to commentators of that time, um, than relative to say the 1930s, uh, still relative to today, the frequency of separate opinion writing was a lot uh, was a lot lower in the 50s than it is now. Yeah, I don't spend as much time as as con law profs or or maybe you or others spend reading old Supreme Court opinions. Um, but my sense is that this more recent practice of having of all the big cases being like you know um, Justice so and so writes for the court. Uh, except for parts two A and three B, in which you know, you know, uh, and Justice uh, X agrees, except for parts four, five, you know, four, five, four, five, and six, and and so these 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 uh, um, opinions where it takes you read the syllabus about the lineup, and it takes you know a, an advanced degree in topology to figure out like who's on what side of everything. Yeah, um, I, I I don't recall seeing that in in older cases. Oh, no, I think that's quite right. And, um, and I think that if we, my impression uh, is that, um, that that has gotten less frequent again, um, and that principally uh, the Justices O'Connor and Scalia 
and, and especially when they were both there at the same time, led to a lot of that voting behavior that that they exhibited that voting behavior right or or that that voting behavior sort of was a a kind of a a nimbus around them uh and of course they're not there anymore my sense so. is this happens all the time these days you know with the with the recent court but i i could be like i'd be i'd be interested in the empirics of not, like n- not not the super intense version that you just described where we read to all except as to part 1a in which yada yada like right. that like that's you know certainly lots of five fours lots of six threes lots of seven twos um but uh and lots of concurring in part or dissenting in part or, and whatever um but that's sort of where you like you say you the syllabus is itself like a a, a big chunky paragraph because and the syllabus exact- yeah the syllabus dear listeners is this summary which is unofficial but um but is a summary. It's basically, yeah. you think of it as a summary. Yeah. And so mapping, you know, who's joining this bit and that bit and is anyone getting to five and blah, blah, blah. Like, that, yeah, I think that's happening less often now than it was mm. in, the, in the sort of um, the late 90s and early aughts. It's interesting because the, you know, there's, you know, breaking it up like that into parts it makes opinions easier to read. I, I certainly appreciate it. Um, especially after like uh, trying to edit cases for for case books from uh, older times, when uh, not only would you not have parts one A B C and part two A and B, but you would have basically just one paragraph for the you know go on for pages. There are no paragraph breaks, much less like <laughs> right. section breaks. Yeah. Uh, so 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 I do appreciate that, but uh, there is a different attitude toward an opinion when it is. You know, and the fact that they agree and disagree with various parts means that the opinion is self-consciously uh, modular, right? Yeah. It, it is, is an argument built out of separate chunks with which you could agree or disagree rather than an, a, a narrative explanation of what you've done, which is, you know, it, it's like, I don't know, like you, you couldn't have a novel if you just took out, you know, chapter five, like the reader would say, "What well, what's happened here? Something, something's yeah. wrong, right? And um, each each piece is critical to every other piece in a way. It's, it's not just modular. Um, I, I don't know. I don't want to put too much on that. But but your point here was that when judges write separately, uh, uh, well, or even when they don't, what do judges who don't agree with the court or who have different ideas, what duties do they owe either to the rest of the court, to the audience, to the litigants, to the broader public audience, uh, or to the future or to their future selves, I think you even said, in explaining, one, that they disagree or that they see it differently, and explaining why. And yeah, I think that was your your question or, or your, your that was your topic. Yeah. That was your topic. Uh, th- Own it. <laughs> that was my question, my sla- my suge- my topic suggestion, and I, it occurred to me, I think, for a few different reasons. You mentioned the sort of getting us back onto um, terra firma. That really wasn't what a reason. Um, I'm I, it, these are the things I think about and want to talk about. So that's you know just is what it is. But the um, I think like I've been spending a lot of time because of my the stuff I'm studying, uh, I've been thinking a lot about uh, separate opinions and various phenomena associated with them. And 
I know that we're... Um, and this is your mapping and visualizing citation practices and how cases connect and how various opinions connect to older opinions and that whole network. Yes, and I'm, and I'm focusing in this current project, it's focusing specifically on separate opinions um, as a, and using uh, citation networks to conceptualize in an alternative way a judicial ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, but the um, this sort of this separate opinion phenomenon um, has spawned lots of different ways of thinking about it, lots of different perspectives from political scientists and and law professors and blah blah blah. But um, but it's also been on my mind because you know the the Supreme Court and the lower federal courts, um, including the courts of appeals, which are also collegial appellate courts, um, and therefore you have multi judge you know, decision units, right? So there's the possibility of separate opinions. They don't, you don't really have that in trial courts. Um, but we're, you know, there's been a lot of change in the federal judiciary over the last few years. I think there's, um, and so I think this issue of separate opinions and what do judges who are trying to do that well, um, and are there and and what standards we might use to evaluate how whether or not they are doing it well? Um, I think we're in for some choppy water, uh, and is it just an intuition I've been feeling? And so I thought it would be good to talk about, um, you know, what what concurrences and what dissents are if you think about them as an as a and neither you nor I are judges, so it's hard for us to. Um, we're imagining it. We're ima- we're we're. Um, well, we both we clerked. Re- we did. We did. We're, bo- which we're makes both. Such- we're both judges in our own way, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, we, but you're right. We both served as law clerks, and that makes it easier for us, perhaps, to engage in the task of imagining ourselves in that role and thinking through what the ethic of that role might be. But that was how it was striking me. It was a question about the ethic uh, of the of the of writing a separate opinion and, and the, like, what do you owe as the, as the author of such a thing, right? Um, what do you owe to, as you said, you know, different, you can think about different um, audiences or different constituencies or different recipients, uh, the litigants, um, the legal practitioners, other judges, uh, the future uh, including the future you, the future other people. Um, and so I just thought it would be interesting to think through that. Uh, well, there are... Together. Yeah, because I, I, I find it interesting you phrase it in terms of duty. And because there are... There, I think there are some... I want to say obvious, but maybe not so obvious, but there are some pragmatic considerations about when judges write what they do in the way that they do. And a lot of that depends on lower courts, whether you're in a lower court or uh, an apex court. Um, uh, if you concur, that's a you know it, 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 you can write things that maybe go beyond what you would say for the court. It might signal to higher courts that they should look at this thing. So there are all kinds of things that you can do. Uh, even in writing a majority opinion, you might kind of pull your punches in a way so as not to attract a dissent. Maybe you prefer to speak with a unified voice. So. Um, these all seem like pragmatic considerations when writing when writing an opinion of any kind. Um, but maybe those pragmatic considerations compete against some broader duties to others. And that, that I think is really interesting. And it, 
It reminds me, um, I think I've talked about this before, you know, when one time when I was able to ask a question of Justice Thomas, I asked whether he felt any duty to speak at oral argument, given that his, uh, in cases in which his dissent or concurrence might be viewed as idiosyncratic, you know, it's, it hasn't come up at argument, it may be some maybe it's an originalist position, maybe it's something else, but you know, it, it's a, it would, he will, he would decide the case under a theory which really hasn't been aired. And in those cases, does he feel at all a duty to say, Hey, what about, what about this? And, and his view was no, his, his job is to decide cases. It's not to ask questions at oral argument. He, he views the whole thing as a job, it not as a, um, I think I brought up this, um, paper of Michael John or, uh, where, he talked about the Supreme Court as teacher, um, playing a public role, almost a public educational role. Um, it sounds a little bit, um, uh, it, it, I don't think he intended it in a patronizing way, but the nation's teacher in such a way, it's like, you know, here's a dispute over rights. Here are some ways of thinking about it. Here's why we've decided it how we have. You know, it's like, okay, you know, you're thinking about this all the time and um, yeah. they're, 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 uh, um, you know, pay attention to the electrician who knows how to put the outlet in. Pay attention to the Supreme Court, which thinks about rights all the time. They may not be, you know, it's not like they're the nine best thinkers and all these things in the nation. There are plenty of people who could do that job, but they happen to be doing that job. They're doing it all the time. Uh, yeah. Listen to what they say. And so th- there is a view that, um, uh, that, that, that they should play that role. And I, but I think in addition, so, so I think that um, Thomas's answer that, uh, you know, it's just a job, and his job is to decide cases. It's an important job, not just a job, but it's, his job is just to decide cases. Uh, I think he would go further because he doesn't just decide case. when he writes a dissent. Like he doesn't have to do that. He could he could just right. dissent, right? Yes, so I, I think I think he too believes in this role of like I need to explain, right? Um, yes, uh, the the evidence indicates that. Um, get the the evidence of his behaviors indicates right. that. Um, and um, and I and maybe duty isn't isn't the best word maybe it is just ethic but but the the um i mean, i do think uh in much the same way that I, I i think you and i could point to specific things we do in our, in our um lives as law professors and and we would use the word should right i i do that because i should do that that way like there's a there's it, there is an internal point of view that with a felt ob, a feeling of obligation Right. To the degree that that's so, I think uh, using words like duty or ethic are sensible. Like they they capture a a subjective reality uh, for being in that situation. That makes sense. Yeah. No, it does. And so let's uh, you know from where would this duty arise, and what are its what's what is the ambit of this duty is kind of the question, right? So because uh, because you could think. At times, it's very important that the court speaks with one voice, so as not to produce the fractured opinion that you know where no one can gain any guidance from it. And so, obviously, the I think the well, again, I'm saying obviously, maybe it's not obvious, and maybe it's even wrong. But the whatever this duty is, whatever its scope, uh, whatever it, it accomplishes, it, it must stem from some conception of the court itself, right? Some you you can't imagine what that duty might be because it's obviously a role based duty. Right, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a duty because of your role as a judge, right. and so it can. If it arises, it arises from some conception of what it means to be a judge or what it means to be a court. 
Yeah. And, and, it, and, it, yeah. and it would seem bizarre to talk about the um, a duty or ethic of separate opinions w- wholly detached from a duty or ethic of the of majority opinions. Right. Right. Which is sort of a, an, a, a way to add to the point you just made about there's got to be some conception of the role of a court or the role of a judge on that court. Um, you know, what are opinions for is probably the way to start figuring out what separate opinions are for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what, what a, a um, you know, opinions as explanations for the parties about who is uh, about the case's disposition. Um, like that's an important thing cases do. Um, although the fact that we gather them all together and publish them in one form or fashion and make them publicly available suggests that that's not all they do. Um, you know, people rely on them as uh a statement of principles and reasons using those principles that can apply in future cases. Courts treat them as important along those lines. And so part of the answer surely must relate to the notion of precedent, uh, since uh, that's a a sort of very uh, foundational or fundamental practice that people seem to be engaged in. um, Well, I think one of the most important considerations here is that you know any judgment is going to be making at least somebody do something they don't want to do right otherwise the, we wouldn't have parties <laughs> right. in court and right. is threatening the entire power of the state against this person to do the thing that they don't want to do and that thing may be as severe well as death uh but certainly yeah, this, is a, this is a robert covert point right yeah. this is a violence in the word um, yeah violence in the word uh, and, it, so, and it's so, a very insignificant. It's a super, super important point, and it's um, what and, and to to try to um, reach to to try to establish a set of practices where law, it, if it is to be coercive, it is at least uh, coercive with reasons. Um, is that's really important? <laughs> it seems yeah, to me. I, so, so the idea of a reasoned opinion really means that you're giving reasons to the person that you're making do what they don't want to do. Here's why this bad thing is happening to you. Uh, and, and in particular, why this, why, why I am doing this bad thing to you. I, on behalf yeah. of the state and, um, uh, but, but reasoned opinion and reason here doesn't mean like a logical proof, right? So, so I think we use the word reason sometimes and it can too easily blend into, you know, like a mathematical proof notion of what yeah. reason means. And, yes, and, and, I'll, I, and I'll, I was not, I, yeah. I was not um, making a claim like that, that it was, no. you know, deductive or, um, you know, uh, you could write it out in some sort of no. logical yeah, note, Bertrand Russell logical I, notation I, right. or something like that. I took you to be saying that, you know, when, and when I say that uh, the same, it's, it's that here are my reasons. Here is why. This is why I'm doing this. And... The, you know, what constitutes a good why, obviously, is the whole enterprise of thinking about law. That's the whole reason we have legal theory and law professors and, and practitioners and judges is to work out this, you know, what, what is the content of this why? What kinds of reasons count? But I, I would say at the core of it and the, the, the core which lies behind even precedent is this basic obligation not to be arbitrary and to treat like cases alike. You know, I'm doing this to you because this is, this is our practice. Right. And, and you, you cannot say that if, if you could not say that it would be, I'm doing this because I have the power to do this. Right. So the, the, to, to turn off, you know, to, to, um, the, the very minimum 
that you need to turn away from, I'm doing this to you because I have the power to do this to you, is I'm doing this to you because this is a case in which we do this to people like you. Yeah, and the, the, the giving of an account of that, right, and the fact that, um, uh, you know, treating like cases alike, um, the, the, the assertion this case is like that other case is, is, uh, is a conclusion, not an observation. Um, right. And so that, that, that also has to be explained. Right. That, that also is a thing that, ha- that I think requires reasons. Um, I can, you know, my, my explanation for why it is that I conclude that this thing is like that thing is, is this or yes. these reasons. It, but it's those those subsidiary reasons are are the ones that construct this 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 model construct this thing these categories right they, so so the once you say I'm going to treat like cases alike what what it is that makes one case like another follows from the imposition of categories into the course of human events you know yes and and, and, the, and that and, and the reasons that yeah go ahead but the the categor, categorization the act of categorizing is itself highly plastic and yes. Um, and so what, probably the, be- the single best, not because it covers all the topics uh, uh, plainly, <laughs> it couldn't, but um, one of the best things about uh, precedent and common law reasoning that I've ever read uh, is, uh, and I read a bunch of this stuff, um, but to date, uh, the best single piece that I've read about it. Oh, here we go. Um, Drum roll. Is, <laughs> it's this article called Precedent by Fred Schauer. Uh, and I think mm. it's in the Stanford Law Review, and I think it's from like the late 80s or early 90s or something like that. Um, and it's um, uh, and and it in, it in <laughs> one of the things I love about it is because it has this um, this sort of mind bending. You just have to be with the sentence for a while, and then it seems fine. But the uh, it's a sentence that goes roughly, um, you know, today isn't just yesterday's tomorrow; it's tomorrow's yesterday. Um, that that pr- sort of figuring out where you are in the sequence of time and you know being committed to reasoning uh, in a way that connects you to the past is also a claim on the way you would reason in the future right um, and, and anyway this this article precedent by Frederick Schauer is is just sort of um i mean it's a real face melter it's a <laughs> like this thing is so good yeah. uh, and that you just have to sit with it and it and it just keeps growing um, yeah. In your brain, um, it's. I would recommend that to anybody. That's an amazing, amazing piece. Well, this process of categorization, as you say, he you spends have to give a re- lot of time on that. He spends a lot give, of time on the you have plasticity to give reasons. of categorization. Yeah, yep. you got to give reasons for why you would categorize. But the point is that those reasons eventually run out. Eventually, it's it's an exercise of uh, of power or preference that is unreasoned. Like we, th- those are never fully grounded. But the commitment to proceeding by categorization is implicit in the the promise to treat like cases alike that I'm treating you this way not because I not not because I have the power to do it but um right. uh, but, but because I have the warrant to do it right I have the power and the warrant to do it and that warrant right. arises from from categorization and it seems to me that precedent is at its core a commitment to some kind of stability of categorization you know, some not not perfect stability. This is you know talk about another piece on precedent. Um, you can go back to um, uh, uh, um, what what is the piece? Uh, uh, um, mm, uh, uh, strict and strict and loose precedent. Oh, boy, I'm having a real 
you, you melt in my brain. Mm. So there's um, uh, Ed Levy's introduction to legal reasoning uh, focuses a lot on this. Um, some uh, I actually uh, I actually teach this all the time, and this is Carla Wellen's. Carl yeah, Llewellyn's Bramblebush focuses yeah, on this. It, it, Llewellyn's Bramblebush is what I'm thinking. Yeah. Right. Um, and so the, the um, yeah, and that stability is the, the fact that it's, um, that this practice of opinion writing is a practice of, of reason giving um, and connecting to di- co- connecting now with the past, which has implications for the future, um, is, is also interestingly, I think, a way of depersonalizing it. Right, mm-hmm. because you're you're giving reasons that could appeal to lots of people. Um, right, the, it it can appeal to the people who you're sitting with on the court right now. It 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 is a set of reasons you could imagine appealing to the court that heard the case that you're referring to from the past. You could imagine it being a set of reasons that would be uh, sensible and and uh, reliable and stable for the people of the future. So. Mm-hmm. The, the giving of reasons and the and the kind of knitting this thing together with the things in the past as a fabric that will extend out into the future takes your idiosyncrasies as an individual judge a, a bit out of the picture and puts sort of foregrounds more into the picture kind of transpersonal it, it's not just about me uh, it's a it's about you know judges more generally um, right can view things this way. Um, and the, and I think in that sense, it connects to the sort of the, the old saw about, you know, rule of law, not rule of men or rule of persons. Like, what yeah. could that mean? And I think one way we can think about what it means is that is just this way, right? That in the giving of reasons that could appeal to lots of different persons, you are sort of treating law or making law you're, you're engaging in the practice of law in a way that is that is law not persons even though it's people doing it hmm. so i think part of what opinion doing I, I mean i think part of what opinions are in the anglo-american tradition is they're they're law like they're <laughs> they're they're not just adjudications of individual cases but because of this precedent and treating like cases alike they are making they're they're building law bit by bit um and and surely that ought to have a, an effect on the way the people who are writing the individual opinions of which it's comprised go about what they do yeah right yeah i i'm, I'm just having I, i'm 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 listening to you and i'm struggling because um it's hard to talk about this without talking about everything. You it know, is immediately That's thinking of like Hart and Dworkin and the moral impact theory, and and you know, it's it, it everything is connected to everything else. Once you get to this level of of uh, of fundamental question about about yeah. law, and I, I agree, I have it's, a, this, it's a real booger. It's like it's a booger because it pulls one thing pulls on every other thing. I have this image, which is a little bit maybe a little bit Dworkinian of 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 the judge as the as as a. Uh, as an individual with a flashlight, um, working in 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 some kind of like superstructure with all kinds of pipes going everywhere and and wires and 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 each case is like a visit to a particular part of the superstructure, and you get there and you shine the light on it and there are many ways to think about how it should work there, and the judge has a memory of you can shine the light elsewhere and see how it's going elsewhere, and it, but all this has to sync up in some way, 
because right? we it has to work. It has to work as a as a total machine. This this is why I say it's kind of Dworkinian. Yeah. But you get there, and it's like not all the pipes are connected, not all the wiring is connected. But you can, <laughs> you know you've done this kind of thing before, and, and but so the judge has some work to do, and that's his or her work. You know, it's it's not as though it's totally depersonalized work. Uh, it's it's and, and and the kind of work one does there um, uh, is going to follow from. Uh, not just familiarity with pipes and wires elsewhere in this, but, you know, pipes and wires elsewhere in life. Maybe the judge has worked on things at his or her home, which are kind of like the pipes and wires here and 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 the kinds of solutions one hits upon. One hits upon them because of other things that have happened in life. Um, surely this isn't just our field where, um, where uh, the way one approaches something may turn on insights that you had doing something completely different. Um, and so... Uh, it, the, 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 it's it's interesting for the original question you pose. What is my obligation to shine a flashlight here? Even if you th- think of how we should do this differently, in your majority opinion, what is my obligation now to say, "Hey, I I see things differently. Here are some different reasons I would offer." Um, that's um, it's it's interesting when when thought about in this in this light because the because it is a it's a personal act. It's like saying, I can't get on board exactly with what you've done, and here's why. And maybe other people can't either, and maybe eventually no one will, or, or maybe we'll reverse course. Um, it is a personal act in a way, right? It's, it's, um, it's not depersonalized uh, totally. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that is, uh, it, it is very interesting in, in that way, right? Um, it is... Of course, majority opinions also are are usually signed, so right. they're not as depersonalized as you can imagine making them. That if you you could design a an appellate court system where um, there would be no dissents offered, um, there would be no signed opinions. They would all just say they were from the court, like you wouldn't know who wrote them. Um, right, and you might even take steps to ensure that there weren't style markers that you could use some software to figure out who wrote them, right? If you were really dedicated to a sort of depersonalization, you might take steps like that. Um, and we don't do any of those things. We, like, we have signed majority opinions. And, um, and so, yeah, the, the, the way in which or the length to which we go to depersonalize things is, is like, you know the fact that there can be dissents and concurrences is a, is one is a manifestation of the fact that there there is a sense in which it remains deeply personal, and and a judge might say, well, you know, I like I, I'm dissenting because or or even concurring because you know my like the way I understand the oath I took is I have to judge this case by my best lights, and if my best lights tell me that this is not that the majority's result and rationale are not correct i i can't join it like i'm duty bound not to join it right um and then if you if you further think and i think this is a a reasonable uh conclusion to draw that that to simply to to concur um separately without offering an opinion or to dissent without offering an opinion seems also to be inadequate, right? Like if I, if, if I think deeply enough about this such that I can't join the majority, I can't not say anything. Right. 
because that just sounds or seems very bizarre. Um, you know, I, I can't join that, but I won't tell anyone why. Like, really? Um, so so you would, you, you've gotten yourself into a corner where it's like you can't agree and you need to write something. And that, well, and, and, and as you say, that's very personal. So think about Obergefell. I think this is a good, a good case to think about. This is the gay marriage case. And unlike um, Brown against Ward or these other watershed cases, not, not unanimous, <laughs> no. almost, almost famously not unanimous. And, but we get no concurring opinions to, um, to Justice Kennedy's majority opinion from the so-called liberal justices. I say so-called because I'm just, you know, the shorthand, not because I doubt their politics or whatever. It's just, you know. Um, so, so no concurring opinions to an opinion that many saw as, you know, uh, maybe not precise enough, maybe not doctrinal. You know, clearly Breyer would have written a very different opinion. So would Ginsburg. I mean, they would have written very, very different reading opinions had they, had, had they written them. Can I, can but, I add a thought here? Yeah. Um, that specific to, you, you mentioned this in the context of Obergefell. I think it's actually applicable to every single one of the court's major gay rights decisions. So um, after Bowers. So, uh, so Lawrence, Romer against Evans, uh, Windsor. Um, right. Uh, the, the um, you know, p- p- lists them all. Um, Justice Kennedy writes the majority opinion, and in none of them is there a concurrence. Yeah, and, and you you know it's, it doesn't take too much imagination to uh, to understand why that might be pragmatic. Um, yes, it, I think it does take very little imagination to understand. So, but, but, so, so one thing is so so I, I I think this case raises several interesting questions. One is what are what is there a role based morality reason to write a concurrence in that case? Is there a, is there a, another kind of morality which requires a result to kind of pragmatic judging? which says don't write a concurrence. And then I think it's fascinating too to think of the uh, of the uh, the two dissents that I have in mind. I don't remember if there were others, but uh, j- there's uh, Chief Justice Roberts' dissent, which was very much a kind of um, uh, invoking the the specter of, of Lochner. Mm-hmm. You know, the judicial overreach. This is uh, whatever you think of the politics of this. Uh, the court shouldn't settle these social questions on disputed social theories. This is for the legislature and it cheapens the victory of, of gay rights advocates in the legislatures to do it this way. And I don't think that opinion has aged very well, at least as a prediction of kind of social movements and and, and whether or not this would aid or detract from um, a gay rights social movement. Uh, but, but doctrinally, it's still something we could argue about. Um, sure. And then there's Scalia's opinion, which I think was um, for someone who could write so well and had a great many very interesting opinions I thought was absolutely atrocious um, for the, you know, this is the hide your head in a bag. I would hide my head in a bag if I wrote like this and talked about like tall, you know, skyscraper lawyers or what he's a tall building lawyers. And, you know, um, just a very kind of the worst of Scalia. Um, but, but angry, like, a, like an angry, um, dismissive, anti-collegial opinion which doesn't necessarily mean that it was wrong to write it. Like, I, you know, I have my views about the issue, right? Um, and, right. and so, you know, so, so I think it's, I, I raise that only because like, it, I think it's interesting to think about like what are, if I felt as strongly about a case as Scalia seemed to have felt about that one, you know, so, suppose that the majority opinion had said that, you know, I, you know that, that uh, uh, um, gay marriage bans are totally appropriate because 
uh, being gay is a disease, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I would probably write a very strong dissent. Um, and it would probably get pretty personal, I would imagine, because uh, because of the reasons cited. The reasons cited, in my mind, would demand a kind of response that would be, um, I don't know that I would be as, would write with quite the invective that Scalia did. I, I, I think I would engage in a way that might be might be decried as uncollegial in engaging with the arguments. It wouldn't be personal, but but it wouldn't be very respectful of the argument advanced, I guess is the way to say it. Because yeah. I don't think that it would be a very respectful position. So if I felt that, you know, so I could see that. So what what is the, anyway, I, I think all three of these things, the, 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 the morality of not writing a concurrence, the uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts version of a dissent and Scalia's version of dissent maybe raise an interesting set of examples here to think about i think they do raise an interesting set of examples and i i think for me part of the um part of what worries me when when i see separate opinions like justice scalia's in obergefell um is that uh like in terms of the the frame we were talking about a few minutes ago if if you're talking about like helpful depersonalization at at least as part of what a majority opinion can do considered as one of a body of opinions over time like a a series of opinions over time that um that the the benefit of the personalization that comes with separate opinions is that you can get, um, you know, a different perspective. And sometimes you really need a different perspective. Like the, the, the whole adversary process itself is based on the, on an idea that, you know, you out of competing, uh, out of contending ways of thinking about something you could get, more often something of a higher quality decision. And so I have my doubts. Uh, I know. And I don't want to derail on that. Yeah. Um, But the, uh, because. See, I dissented. You see what I did there? I dissented. I felt I had to dissent. You did. It was great. Uh Um, And and so that's just an, an example. There are many of where we think that having the possibility for multiple perspectives is part of a healthy decision-making process. Right. Um, and that, and that, and that of course involves some kind of personalization. The person who's speaking up to say something of a contrary view or a differing view or alternative view, they are really offering what they have as an individual to that process. And that's a good thing. Like that, that again, the theory is that helps make a decision better, but it, if they do it in such a way that or, or if we think about okay well what are the ways you could do that uh offer that different view and some ways of offering the different view i think would undermine some of the other benefits of depersonalization or some of the other benefits of um you know trying to offer reasons and and give something that weaves together something constructive and other ways of doing it would would support it even as they offered a different view, it would still be done in such a way that the overall project of 
you know, constructively offering reasons that over time can create an, a, a, a structure of, that people can use and have, um, have some confidence in and uh, have some understanding of. Um, like you could either be supporting that or you could be undermining it. Like if you were, if, if you're at a meeting and you're, you know, you say, oh, we welcome different views and that's, this is how we try to make better decisions. And, you know, there's one guy at the meeting or one gal at the meeting who's like, they, you know, they say everything they say, you know, I, ha- I have a different view, uh, comma, and I think you all are jackasses, comma, and here's my different view. Like if every time they had the different view, they said the, <laughs> that little comma phrase, um, that that would sort of, uh, I think over time that would wear on people, right? And it would it would sort of be like, hmm, <laughs> you're you're acting a little bit like you don't think a conversation is actually how we should arrive at things. You're actually acting as if you think you should just get to boss us all around because you yeah, keep it- calling us jackasses. <laughs> well, I don't let that stop me from talking to you. <laughs> But you see, like you, you see be- my story. My story I, I, I is do. like there's a there's a way to disagree that doesn't undermine the project, and a way well, to disagree that, that that does undermine the project. This kind of relates to the fact that um, that that every every assertion of of a conclusion that you purport to back up with reason is an act of vulnerability, because you know any intelligent person can take apart part just about any assertion that you make there's always a counter argument uh to almost anything um except when you know the the, the exception might be when when the counter argument is is uh the person would be embarrassed to make it because it would rely on assumptions that would reveal the person as kind of a bad person or something under under the group's mores so to to come out in favor of a position is to be vulnerable and I think to engage with that in good faith means to make oneself vulnerable in perhaps a different way, but not to take advantage of the other person's vulnerability, right? Hmm. So to, uh, and, and that's what I think that Scalia's opinion did, right? So we could, we could criticize the, the florid prose of Kennedy's opinion as being, you know, inexact and unanalytical, and, but it said what he said. It, it's it 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 staked out a position, and supported it with arguments which one can criticize and engage with. But to say that you would hide your head in a bag if you wrote something like that is to attack the the act of vulnerability itself, right? Rather than engage, rather than presenting a, a, an alternative world and an alternative way of thinking about it, or just revealing the faultiness of the lot you could you know to the extent that there are logical connections which would on which the argument was built of course you can attack those uh, but that's not what he did yeah and i think um the uh and in that way uh, uh in the in the story that you just described um if it if it is true that um taking the position is an act of vulnerability um, and and that sounds right to me in the way that you describe it. But even if it isn't right, on, on your in your frame, right, the 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 vulnerability of the majority opinion, right? If your reaction to that is to sort of heap vituperation on a person, and you know pour the most verbally scalding language onto them that you can come up with, 
um, that undermines that phenomenon, right? You're making right. it harder for that person to engage in that vulnerability the next time. And, is it, and it is in that sense a separate opinion that, tr- that is making future opinions like harder. Um, yeah, and I feel like, of, yeah, I was just gonna say, I feel like I've done that before in arguments with people, yeah, yeah, you know, and I regret it when you, when you engage in an argument, which is, which does, it takes advantage of that in a way that you may even intend to like, we shouldn't have arguments about this anymore. And one way to ensure that doesn't happen is to make you unwilling to make that point. And I can, mm. rather than to persuade you of something, um, I, yeah, like the, I mean, the ultimate, an ultimate version of that is, um, you know, if you think about um, abusive relationships where p- physical violence is used to, oh, in, yeah. when someone like says some, a particular thing or does a particular thing and the other person physically is violent to them. I mean, that's the, that's like, it, go, it goes past, I'm going to use words to try to make you not say that anymore. I'm right. going to use my fist to make you not say oh, that Oh, it's anymore. the ultimate version of not share, of, of refusing to share, right? Of refusing to, to share a world. Yeah. And so uh, the, yeah. I, I think um, the kind of uh, invective-filled personal attack opinions, of, of, and I do think Justice Scalia in, in gay rights cases in particular seem to develop a kind of a crutch and a habit of engaging in that kind of uh, behavior. Um, but not in most cases. That's the thing. Like in, in many other cases, there was, you know, he wrote in some cases with which I agreed and some which I didn't, like, you know, trenchantly, interestingly, sure. you know, ma- made more of both his position and the position that he was attacking, like, which is what the best dissents do is it like really highlights what the what the separate worlds of reasoning are doing. Um, well, so just, this is really these interesting. Cases, as you point out, they don't, yeah, go ahead. But this is, see, this is what's interesting when you say the best ones, like, so the best ones, um, like they imagine, I mean, w- one way to f- frame what's so uh, gross about writing a, 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 an invective filled um, vituperative uh, screed um, is is because you have the feeling as a reader it's like look are you saying you would have agreed with him if he had written an opinion that was more stylistically to your liking like that doesn't sound right <laughs> right right so so why not when you're writing your concurrence or your dissent why not imagine the majority's opinion to be the best statement of that view that you yourself could produce right right and then respond to that because then you would be explaining what it was about not not on surface or style but on the on the on the building blocks and how they fit together Uh, why you conceptualize those blocks and put them together differently Um, so it's it's interesting i'm thinking of our own profession right now the uh of teaching and there are two ways that i think i don't say i don't want to say students can fail but that students can um uh that that students can um hold back a class from being the best that it can be and one i think is by being overly deferential to the professor and another is by um 
disagreeing, but in a way that in kind of this Scalia and Obergefell type way. And that's usually by attacking credentials, like, you know, you don't really know mm. your field or, you know, this is the, the, the unhelpful kind of argument rather than to recognize that even an, even teaching is an act of vulnerability. Right. I, I, I'm up teaching you here, not because I, I know the truth, capital T, capital T about everything in this field, but because I'm familiar with these arguments. I know more about it than you do right now. And let me let's let's take a walk through here together and yeah. and learn these things. And so what you want is, is students who question, students who, who push back, right? who, who, because the whole teaching is of a how, right? Let's, how do we generate these alternative worlds, these alternative normative worlds of, uh, uh, supported by different kinds of reasons? Why, why did the court not accept this alternative world? Why did the court say these reasons and not those reasons? Is, is that the way it has to be? Could it be a different way? Um, none of that happens if students assume you are the authority. It is wrong of me to question the authority. Nor if the student thinks you are not an authority, you are not worth listening to. I just need to, you know, learn the list of the laws and write them down on the exam. Yeah, both of those views are are um, unhelpful to <laughs> the project if if it is as you described, and and the project where. Everyone in the room is responsible, although different people are responsible in different ways. But there, right. there's responsibility and accountability for everyone and by everyone in the room. Uh, is I think can make that work in the way that I think is more is more helpful and fruitful and and productive. But in a way, it is kind experience. of like it is kind of like an opinion writer because if you're writing the opinion of the court, what you're saying is authoritative in a very specific way, but it is not exhaustive of the truth, capital T, capital T, right? And so the, the concurrence and dissent writers are in a position similar to students, not that they are, you know, it's possible for them to be too subservient and not write at all when they have something to say. Yeah, um, and they may have pragmatic reasons for doing that rather than fear-based reasons or some or feelings of inadequacy, right? There may be different reasons why they assume that that position, um, but they may also be dismissive in a way that doesn't help in the project of showing, you know, the fuller picture of these alternative worlds. I don't know. I'm just thinking of this now. There, there seems to be a parallel there between ways of making a class work and ways of making a particular decisional moment work and i think the i agree with you that there is a similarity and it and it um i think the similarity is is rooted in the fact that it is um it is a reason giving process it is a it is a thought weaving process in both instances and at least in the stuff we teach i mean right i don't teach other things so i don't know but um but at least what we do, that's true. And the um and to find a way to to walk that road where you're you are separate, but you're not separate in a way that just like destroys what's happening. Right. Um but but rather contributes and and supports even in your separateness and your and your idiosyncrasy, which is really needed. Like it it is great that there are the separate views there. Um, and it's not great if someone starts 
shooting their shotgun into the bottom of the boat like that because then the boat sinks well i think we should wind it up but i don't but i think um i interestingly because i wasn't sure i wasn't sure how you know how much we were gonna because you know i don't i haven't read a a a paper on this in preparation for this discussion i was wondering how much are we gonna have to talk about with this and and i haven't read a paper about it either yeah, well, you know, maybe, maybe the shower paper and maybe other papers on precedent are working around the edges of this topic. Um, mm. But, uh, I, and and certainly, I, I'm trying to remember recent papers on concurrence and dissent practices. I, I feel like there are some, and may, maybe part of what I'm thinking is informed by those in ways I'm not putting my finger on right now. Mm. Uh, but what I'm what I'm thinking right now is that we have we have not scratched the surface of your deeper question here about you know what is my obligation as a judge uh, um, to my various audiences and in light of my pragmatic considerations that this is a very you know a very deep question of of role-based morality but also like public morality i i don't know joe i feel like we could talk for four hours about this but i'm not ready to right now okay i agree that we could and i also am not ready to I feel like I need to think some more about this. Feedback at oralargument.org. Mm. Feedback at oralargument.org. Send us that mail. I want to read it. And if you sent us an email and we haven't responded to you, then I think something went wrong because I don't think we've gotten it. And so maybe maybe uh, hit me up over Twitter or the Oral Argument account on Twitter, which is just or- at Oral Argument, and, and oh. tell us, hey, yeah. you know, you dummies, I sent you something. Maybe you sent it to the wrong address. Maybe there's something wrong with the mail thing. I don't know. So uh, feedback at oralargument.org. And I guess they should be constructive in this feedback, right, Joe? <laughs> don't don't tell us we should hide our heads in a bag. Well, I mean, yeah, you 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 can do that if if that's what you think is best for you to do. But yeah, it, it is going to land differently um, than, <laughs> if, than if you... Um, if you offer something that um, makes it, you know, if you if it shows you want to play an infinite game, not a finite game. Mm. Yeah, tit for tat. Yeah. Well, uh, what what else do you, what what else should we what should we talk about before we sign off? And maybe maybe we'll return to this topic next week. I don't know, Joe. I mean, the sky's the limit. We can do whatever we want. This is true. And uh, I don't know that we would return to it next week. Maybe we would, but I think we will return to it at some point in the future. I mean, we don't um, have a... We can record whenever... We can. We may return to this tomorrow. May, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were... Now, you focused on the temporal part of that sentence. I was referring to the topical part of the sentence. Maybe yes, we'll do we a different... Both, we maybe a different topic a different tomorrow. Day and, yeah, yeah, and we could record on a different topic. It's like any, anything. It's anything. It could be anything. Boy, it could be anything. Well, that, that makes me hopeful for the future and and grateful for the conversation. After all these years, Joe, we're still talking. Yeah. I think that's good. And I will talk I, to you, I would say next week, but it could be tomorrow. Indeed. Indeed. Sounds all right. Good. Bye.